Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Pages, a podcast on books and sexuality hosted by yours truly, Caitlin Vacora. We are so excited to have Rosie Dannon on the show. Welcome, Rosie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes. So Rosie is the author of a wonderful book called The Roommate, and the New York Times calls Rosie's book, The Roommate, a book about people expanding into their best possible selves, warmly funny and gorgeously sexy. The rom-com has been optioned for film and a companion book, The Intimacy Experiment, is forthcoming April 6, 2021 in both the U.S. and the U.K. And after participating in writing mentorship program Pitch Wars as a 2018 mentee, she was thrilled to rejoin the organization as a 2019 and 2020 mentor. And when not writing, Rosie enjoys jogging slowly to fast music, petting other people's dogs, and competing against herself in rounds of chopped using the miscellaneous ingredients occupying her fridge. As an American expat currently living in London, she has developed an incurable fondness for electric kettles. That is the best bio ever, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) All true, all true. Awesome. Well, there's so much in there that I want to get to, but we always start off with kind of like a sex ed question. And so what is the worst sex advice or sex ed tidbit that you received? (laughs) I hope that this one counts. This is like one of the earliest memories that I have of somebody trying to explain something like sex ed related to me and it was on like the school bus and what I'm pretty sure was like fifth grade and it's just like such a terrible vivid metaphor that it really stands out in my mind and I think this is interesting because so many of us I feel like do have our first exposure to quote unquote sex ed from peers who like may or may not actually know what's real. So I remember on the bus, somebody saying that like, when a boy gets excited about a girl, and again, obviously like this vernacular was quite elementary, that like vanilla pudding (laughs) comes out of the penis. And I was so appalled because I was just like, how does the pudding get in there? Like what, why vanilla? Uh, So many questions, but yeah, it just really harkens back to misinformation, I think, and how like quickly that stuff can spread. You have like a whole bus of kids talking about this. So yeah, kind of a nightmare, but shows the importance of accurate and inclusive sex education. I'm simultaneously like horrified and also intrigued. I'm like, I think yes. vanilla pudding like- <laughs> Sounds better kind of in some ways. Yeah. yeah, right? I'm like, I see, <laughs> I see the linkage, but like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, no, I think your point about like, you know, sex ed coming from your peers is so real. I think that there's a, there's an, a belief in our culture that like kids don't talk about it or like if we don't talk about it, kids won't talk about it. But like the reality is we get our sex ed information from our peers, right? Like we get it from the internet, we get it from our peers because quite often the sex ed that we receive in schools or from our families are just like not cutting it. And so like, yeah, if, you're, if your peers are telling you about vanilla pudding, you're going to believe vanilla pudding, you know? Yeah, I think like your peers are just the people, especially like early in your life when you feel more comfortable asking those kinds of questions than to like approach an adult with it, especially because there's so much taboo around asking questions about our bodies or about sex. So yeah, unfortunately, my sex education started with a terrible vanilla pudding metaphor. <laughs> well, now you're here and you wrote an amazing book about sex ed and <laughs> romance. And so, you know, full circle, which leads me into my next question. Would you mind giving kind of like a quick summary of The Roommate for folks? So like the one log line that I typically use is it's about an inconvenient attraction 
between two very unlikely roommates that sparks a plan to overthrow a porn empire. My good friend always makes fun of me. She's like, it sounds so innocuous when you start out. It's like, oh, there's roommates. And like, oh no, they're attracted to each other. That's a problem. And then she's like, and then somehow they're taking over a porn empire and things really get out of hand. But yeah, I mean, it, it very much is a story about opposites attract. Like you have a very conservative blue bud socialite heroine. And then you have a sex worker hero who I usually describe as like a golden retriever in a hot man's body. And yeah, they find themselves living together and then eventually find themselves going into business together. And that business idea is pretty radical and challenges a lot of what people typically think about as the porn industry. It's so awesome. Yeah. And I think like that's what really kind of drew me to this story is that like I kind of picked up being like oh this is like a cool like I I love that you know sex work is being incorporated into it I'm I'm interested in like the romance part of it and then yeah like kind of that last part about like you know overthrowing that porn empire I was like oh hell yeah like we are we're going (laughs) to that next level I you know I started writing it uh in earnest I would say coming out of the 2016 election and I think so much of the book is reflective of that in in weird ways like it's very much an exercise in like radical joy but I think in addition to kind of some of the soft like cozy romance elements which were very comforting to me you also get this sense of people wanting to fight back against corrupt systems yeah and like the the fact that you're able to fight back and then winning or like you know overthrowing is possible, I think is like a really powerful idea, especially, yeah, after 2016. And then also like, I'm thinking about that. uh, We're recording three days before the election or four days before the election in the US. And so like, yeah, thinking about that idea of, of like, you can win, right? Like, that's really powerful. Yeah, that's for, again, I kind of like write the books that are sending a sort of a message to myself that I need to hear at the time. And I really needed to hear that, like, resistance isn't futile, like, you can band together with, like, like-minded people, and you can affect change, even if it is in small steps at first. For sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, and then, so, like, you're writing after 2016, you're writing this this story. I know you are a participant of Pitch Wars, as we read in your bio, so I was wondering if you could kind of tell me about the origin story of writing this, and then maybe, like, how, how Pitch Wars uh, came into your life, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely started writing this, like I said, as pretty much a self-indulgent hobby, you know, like really just going to write something that would be really fun and escapist for myself. And I I wasn't necessarily pursuing publication originally because I had taken an introductory writing course um, for, for romance authors and the organizer of the course, the instructor, was a pretty well-established romance author And she told me, like, when I pitched this idea, like, you're never going to succeed in traditional publishing with an idea like that. And I was like, okay, you know what, that's fine. Like, I'm still going to write the story that I care about. And so I had a draft written and it was, you know, it was the first thing I'd ever written. So it was kind of a mess. But then I heard about Pitch Wars, which is a writing mentorship program that pairs authors pursuing publication with authors and sometimes editors who have a bit more experience and who are willing to work with a mentee. And the process typically takes 
four to six months, they kind of change the length sometimes, but you get really hands-on intensive feedback that mirrors the traditional publishing process. So you get like an edit letter, you get line edits a lot of the time, you get help packaging your querying materials for going out on submission. So it was just a, a terrific opportunity, I thought, to get that kind of attention. And I didn't really know anyone in the writing community at that time. So it was also really attracted to the idea of like being a part of a, a mentee program where you'd have like a hundred peers to work with. So I, I got selected um, in 2018 and yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I learned a ton from my mentors, but I also would say I learned just as much from my peers in the program. And those are some of my closest writing friends and also just like general closest friends now, two years later, and getting to be a mentor has been really awesome as well, because I learned just as much even on that side of things about, you know, part of the process as a mentor I just went through is I review hundreds of submissions the way an agent would. And so it really teaches me about what's hooking people, like what kind of themes are emerging. So I think that insight into the process is also super valuable. It's almost like um, like a squished down like version of like the whole publishing process, which exactly I that's so cool. Yeah, and like it really is like kind of a launching pad for some some amazing books. And it, it's funny, I read um, something to talk about earlier this summer, and by Meryl Wilsner, who I think is in your peer class with uh, Pitch Wars. Yes, yes, they're uh, a good friend. So I was kind of funny as I was reading, I always read the acknowledgements of of every book because I just like am fascinated by like how many people impact, you know, the process. And I saw Meryl was mentioned in yours and I was like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> my world is colliding. Yeah, it's been such an honor to kind of feel like you're a part of some of your friends' work. I've never really had that experience before, but like with Meryl, for example, we beta read for each other like in the program two years ago and then got to this year hold each other's published books and I have them like next to each other on my shelf now and it's just Aww. a very very cool very kind of surreal feeling yeah and it, and kind of going back to the feedback that you got from the romance class that you took it's really interesting to me that the feedback was like this will not be successful in traditional publishing. And I wonder if it's almost like publishing has, is, it feels like slow change, but also kind of radically changed in the last couple of years. Like, do you think that that, that, that feedback maybe like wouldn't be, wouldn't be said or wouldn't be resonating as much today just because we're kind of evolving into kind of these, these types of stories? Yeah, no, I think it, it's really interesting. So that comment came, you know, probably four years ago. And I think there has been noticeable shifts in the traditional marketplace. You know, my book did still meet some resistance. Like when we were out on submission, there were a handful of editors that said, you know, we really like this story. We wish we could give this story a home, but we're nervous that it wouldn't find like success in the market. So I do think that like Berkeley really kind of took a chance on the book and I really appreciate that. And I think that the reason they were one of the reasons I suspect they were willing to do that is because of the success of the Kiss Quotient, which had happened, I think about a year before, obviously would have been on submission probably two years before. But obviously, Helen's book has a sex worker hero as well. So I think that book did a lot to open up the aperture on what publishers or at least what Berkeley was willing to invest in. So very um, grateful that I think my book did get to my editor's desk after the success of that book because I think it showed people that I think the 
readers are open to more than they maybe thought. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's probably a sense that we have to be somewhat conservative when we're investing financially, like in any industry. But I think finally, um, in some ways, like the traditional market is seeing the success, especially in indie romance, where there's so many more strides towards inclusive storytelling that, you know, they want some of those dollars as well. And so then they're seeing with success of books, whether it's Helen Huang or um, obviously Talia Hibbert has been a, a huge success with really inclusive storytelling. So I'm hopeful that yeah, we'll continue to hopefully invest. Because I think that as a genre, we try to hold up this idea that love is love, but it doesn't always get on the shelves in that way. And so I'm hopeful that like the shelves will start to reflect this ideology that I think the genre can champion. It's so powerful to be able to see yourself in these stories, especially because, you know, contemporary romance up until, you know, the last like 10 or so years, it, it, it was kind of a narrow, a narrow version of, the world, right? And so like to be able to say, okay, you know, I am a sex worker or I have participated in sex work and like, you're still able to have the happily ever after, you're still able to have love, like that, it shouldn't be radical, but that is a radical notion. And so it's it's powerful to be able to have, you know, publishers like Berkeley actually give a rise to, to those types of stories. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, some of the reader reactions that I've gotten are people saying, you know, I wasn't sure about this, but it's actually made me think about sex work differently, or it's made me reconsider some of my own stigma that I've internalized. And that is a big win for me. I think like people sometimes want to discount the impact that romance novels can have. You know, they want to say like, oh, romance novels are just like fluffy or they're smut or whatever. But I think that romance novels have just as much potential as any other art form and maybe in some ways more because they are so focused on the human elements of storytelling to affect change and to make people more accepting. And so I think that is something I definitely want to continue to strive to do with, with stories I tell. So powerful. And like, this is something I talked about with, with Sarah McLean, where it's like, people kind of discount it because, oh, well, you know what's going to happen in the end. And Sarah made the point of like, well, you know what, like thrillers and mysteries, you know how it's going to end. Yeah. Like, and it's like, it's discounted, I think, because it centers love, it centers emotions, it centers sex, all things that we sort of dismiss as a society as like not important enough for its own focus or its own story. And so like being able to, to kind of infuse that type of that type of book with these kind of like more radical ideas for some of like, you know, sex workers are heroes, right? Like, you know, they are, they have their own like love stories and lives and like are full people. It's, it's important, I think. And I was curious kind of what interested you specifically in kind of writing about sex work and female pleasure, pleasure with, for folks with vulvas, like, you know, what made you kind of center that within your story? <laughs> it probably sounds kind of silly, but I'm, again, when I was writing for the first time, it was very much about like, what kind of story do I feel like is worth me investing, you know, several years of my life in telling. And I really treated it, and I kind of still continue to treat my writing process like this, as an opportunity for me to meditate on a theme that's important to me. And so I was writing that book in my early 20s. And the thing that I was trying to internalize and trying to work through is, I, I think there's a, a kind of a culmination of themes, but like part of it was just shedding shame 
in general. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need to feel bad that I wasn't fulfilling everyone else's expectations. I didn't need to feel bad that, you know, in dating interactions, like I wanted to be as entitled to pleasure as anyone that I might be interacting with, that I wanted to, again, like feel like I could see things that were wrong in the world and take actions to try to combat them. So it was more about starting with a lot of those themes that were important to me that I wanted to think about in depth that I wanted to peel apart. And then also having like story constructs that appeal to me as a reader. So I'm a lifelong romance reader. I love historicals. I love regencies. And so it's funny, this is actually a trope that I think you see most commonly in historical the lessons in seduction between like a rake and a blue stocking. I just love that. I think it's so juicy and it has such a fun narrative structure of like, we're going to kiss, but it's for science. (laughs) Um, And so I wanted to play with that. And so Clara and Josh are kind of my contemporary evolutions of the rake in the blue stocking archetype. Obviously, Clara is like overeducated, underemployed, a little bit of a modern wallflower. And then, you know, if you think about a historical rake, it's really a sexually confident man that, you know, typically exudes charisma. And so Josh fulfills that archetype, obviously, in a very modern way through his role as a sex worker, but also in the things that he believes. I think that's really an important part of Josh, like in addition to his work, He's somebody that believes in like equal opportunity orgasms. Like he just wants everyone to be comfortable communicating about sex as well as having sex. So yeah, I was kind of like, I really like that story construct. I think that would have really interesting evolution in a modern setting. Cause I think in, in typical lessons in seduction in a historical, the heroine, her pleasure might be framed by her partner and like what he wants her to learn at any given time. Whereas Clara's journey is very much about her agency and her saying like, this is what I want to discover. These are the things I want to work through in order to become more confident. And so that was really a fun story for me to tell. Well, and it's interesting because I've, I've read that trope a few times in historicals and like, you know, my favorite ones are the ones that even in the historical context are centering women's pleasure, right? Like the pleasure of the heroine. And so like to see that sort of play out in the modern context was really interesting to me. I don't know. I I think, I think if I were to be kind of asked before I read the roommate, like, Oh, is this actually relevant, you know, in the contemporary context, I'd be like, I mean, we have like Google and stuff. So like, maybe not, but then, but like thinking about the way that her culture is like, we, we don't center women's pleasure ever. Right. And so like, it is radical still, even in, you know, the year of our Lord 2020, like that it's that women deserve to, to have orgasms, to have pleasure. It can be about like, you know, even the way that we define sex is, has a person with a penis or a man orgasmed. Right. And so like, even though it is like kind of originated as like historical trope, like it's, it is still so relevant today. So it was so fun to see Clara and Josh, like really kind of tease that out and then kind of going to that next level of destroying the porn empire be able to kind of like parlay that that into a business that like actually kind of will reach so many more women and also like really kind of address the problems in the porn industry so I thought that was really really cool oh thank you so much yeah it was I think one of the best things about being a romance writer is it just feels so joyful and you know obviously there are parts of it that are really hard but 
I just feel really grateful that I got to write this story and also get to share it with people who, you know, took away a lot of the same messages that I was trying to deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And it was cool. Again, I, I told you I read I read the acknowledgments for everything. And so yeah. I saw <laughs> I saw in the acknowledgments. I think did you consult a subject matter expert in the porn industry? Yeah. So, you know, I don't have the lived experience of a sex worker myself, but I obviously wanted to treat the depiction with as much accuracy as possible. So during the earlier phases of development. I worked with a current male performer, uh, Lane Rogers, who actually a friend of mine introduced me to, which was really cool. And he was just fantastic to work with. He was super enthusiastic about the project and like the sort of mission of the project in helping people to understand that a lot of their internalized ideas about sex work and the people who do it are not true and are not healthy. Um, So that was awesome. And he yeah, he also was just one of the most compassionate readers that I've ever had. Like sometimes, you know, with a different beta reader, for example, sometimes they deliver a piece of feedback and you're like, okay, you're right. But also my feelings are hurt. (laughs) Um, Whereas anytime Lane would point something out, it was always just like so sweet. Like one of the like kind of funny things that came up is that I had had a line in there and it was you know, not even a major focus line, but about Josh talking about his work. And he was talking about he wanted a steady paycheck and he wanted dental insurance. And I just remember Lane in the shared document that we have, like leaving a comment that was like, I wish we had dental insurance, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, oh my gosh, like in hindsight, it it, it feels like, okay, yeah, I get why that probably isn't a benefit <laughs> that a lot of uh, adult performers have secured, but obviously <laughs> I wish they did. Um, but yeah, just like that way of talking about stuff, like he never made me feel like, well, you're an idiot that you don't know this or anything. It was always just delivered in a really kind way. And it was also actually like one of the most rewarding experiences to have him read the book and to react to like emotions in the narrative and say like, I felt this, or that is something that's really important to me. And that yeah, I think he just really identified with a lot of parts of Josh's journey. And so that was just tremendously rewarding for me as an author. Yeah, it's so lovely. Um, And I think it kind of leads back to that point of like, reflecting true lived experiences that quite often don't get the platform of a contemporary romance from a big publisher, right? Like it's, I think, and and I think when people sometimes try to write stories about like sex work or other things um, without sort of having that like sensitivity or like reader or subject matter expert or anything like that, like because we have such internalized views of sex work, often that the result isn't really kind of true to, true to the experience, right? Like whether, whether you think that you know, sex workers have dental insurance or like other things, you know, like it's the truth of the matter isn't across the board, not even just with sex work. It is like, if we don't have that lived experience, like we probably are missing things. We probably have blind spots. We're not going to do it justice unless we actually have someone who can, who can really kind of reflect that back to us. And I love that, that he even had those kind of emotional reactions of like, oh, like I, I felt that like, that's so powerful. And I think that um, is really a boon to to you to kind of be able to reflect that experience back for folks who might have that. Yeah, like, I will definitely say, 
Because I've actually had a fair amount of conversations with people about, I was surprised that you were able to write about sex work in in the way that you did. And I think that, and this is going to maybe, again, like sound simple, but I don't know that it is. Like, I think a lot of the experiences that sex workers have, even if we haven't had those lived experiences, we've been put in positions that are similar in our own lives. So I'll like give an example, like Josh is talking about how in one scene, how because of the work that he does, like sometimes fans will like feel be overly familiar with him. And sometimes they'll like get handsy with him and things. And that's something that I talked with Lane about. And he's like, absolutely, that's like happened to me in my work. But I think there's a lot of people who have had others like ignore their physical boundaries and so you know that feeling of discomfort you know that feeling of it making you you know almost feel like your body is being commoditized and so I think that's one of the reasons I was able to hopefully tell this story in a healthy way is that even though I don't have all of Josh's lived experiences like I know a lot of the ways that society tries to make people feel bad about (laughs) like kind of everything (laughs) so I think just having a lot of respect for sex workers and just like understanding that their experiences are not that different from like anyone else's like obviously there's nuance of of their occupations and you know you always try to honor that but I think people are so quick to put up a wall and say like well I could never do that or that's so far outside of the realm of like what I would consider. And it's like, I think maybe there are more similarities um, in experiences than you want to admit. I, I distinctly remember that part of, of reading The Roommate where I was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, like I, 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 I was not surprised, but I was just like, you know, of course, of course people are not respectful of physical boundaries because we live in a society where like rape cultures, you know, permeates everything, right? And so like, and I think specifically, um, I connected to that part of like, when you work like in the field, and, and again, I don't have personal experience being a sex worker. So like, definitely not kind of a, an, an even kind of trade here. But like, you know, when you work sort of in the field of, of sex, no matter what that looks like, like, so I work in sex education. And so very adjacent to kind of the, that world, but I still sort of get people who violate sort of my emotional boundaries when they talk about like, you know, they either kind of are smirking or like laughing at me for like working for like mentioning sex as like part of something that I do. Like, it's, it's really interesting to me that like, we have this assumption about sex that is like, everything is either like funny or like gives people permission to like, share things about their own sex life. And I'm like, I don't need to know that. Like, you know, that's, I'm not working right now. And so I really did resonate with that, that part that Josh kind of was saying that like, yeah, people don't have boundaries when it comes to sex. Yeah. I think that that is so like such an important, like it matters to me a lot. And I think it, it's something a lot of romance writers, like the same way you're talking about being a sex educator, kind of opening that door to what's really, that's harassment. It happens to a lot of romance writers too. And it, has definitely happened to me. Um, And I think in some ways has been amplified by the fact that I wrote a book that includes uh, adult performers. And it's so frustrating because I think any romance author will tell you that, yeah, you kind of open the door for people to make comments, like leers and jeers is what they call it. Like they're either going to mock you or they're going to make inappropriate comments. But yeah, the extra element of, of writing about the adult entertainment industry 
now people are asking me questions about like what kind of porn do I watch and stuff like that and it's just it can be very uncomfortable for me and I think sometimes people don't even mean to be inappropriate it's just like the the content somehow opens that door but yeah uh, you know I think in some ways while I was writing about the stigma associated with the adult entertainment industry I think there's a lot of mirror reflections of what romance writers go through as well I actually spend a lot of time thinking about like how can I combat that like how can I have the right response to like reclaim my boundaries and things like that and there aren't I haven't found any easy answers I think it's something you get better at with time like it is kind of something that like you know you get well practiced I have like a couple of lines that I like now use if someone is like kind of being like weird or leering or jeering or whatever whatever kind of like thing that they're doing to me I'm like okay like I know how to shut it down but I also like I think it's a valuable teaching moment sometimes. Um, and I, maybe that's just like my sex educator <laughs> mind being like, oh, let's like address the stigmatization that's happening right now. But like, you know, I, I have this distinct memory of someone who was close to me. I had just started my job. And so they were like asking about like, oh, what do I do? And their kid um, who's in high school was around and she was like, mom, you need that for all the things that I see in your medicine cabinet or like something alluding to like some type of like sex toy or whatever. And like, you know, this person turned super like red and was like, oh my God, like, that's so embarrassing. Like, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. And like, it was kind of an interesting teaching moment for, for me with, with the kid who is still like a young person or whatever. And I was like, Hey, like, you know, that is nothing to be ashamed of. And like, let's not let, let's not kind of contribute to that. You know, I forget what I actually said. I'm sure it was (laughs) brilliant, but, um, you know, I think that that was like, that's so interesting to me that like those kind of things around like shame and stigma pop up just in your everyday life because, and and those conversations almost are like spurred on by our professions. And so like, I'm like, you know what, like, let's, let's just like name it. Let's say like, Hey, that's pretty shaming. Let's not do that. And it's totally normal to do these things. Yeah. I think that's a really important response. And you know, I actually struggle with like every time it happens, it catches me off guard. And I always get like frustrated with myself because I'm like, okay, you've been doing this for years now. You know that that kind of question or comment is going to come in. And I just never really have the response ready. I did say, because the worst is when it happens with someone close to you. Like I've had extended family members say things to me that made me uncomfortable. And it almost feels harder to bring it up with someone that you're close to sometimes than like a stranger. But I think that approach is really thoughtful. And and I'm going to try to employ that a little bit more of just saying like, I I do try to call out inappropriate behavior. But I think you're going a step further and saying like, here's like a teaching moment, here's an opportunity for you to reflect. And I think that that could be really useful. So I'll I'll try to employ that. It's honestly super hard. Like I, I would say that's like the minority of times, but like, like this is part of like the trainings that I do is like, literally I have a training on like answering difficult questions. And so it's for educators to like, when you get an embarrassing quote unquote question from a student being like, okay, we're going to breathe. We're going to, you know, normalize the curiosity behind the question, no matter what it is, we're going to put the facts out there and then, you know, we're going to be able to answer that question. And so like, you know, it's something that like, no one is really good at, like even people whose job it is to like teach health ed or sex ed. And so like, it's, it's something that requires a ton of practice and like, and to be honest, like you're not 
on call all the time, right? Like you're just kind of trying to live your life and like be at a family gathering and like you shouldn't have to constantly educate people, um, even if that is unfortunately the reality. You're right. Like that's what I'm kind of torn between of like, do I sort of rise to the occasion? And I think again, like that framework you shared is something that any kind of person in any of our industries could benefit from because you always do feel like caught a little unaware, I think. But also at the same time, you're like, just want to be like, F you, <laughs> like, get away from me. Like, I don't owe you the courtesy of a polite response. Totally. I'm trying to eat my cheese plate, sir. Yeah. Can we not? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. no, it's, it is a, an ever evolving thing for sure. Well, something that we kind of talked about or alluded to a little bit was, you know, at the beginning of the book, Clara is kind of your typical blue stocking. She really doesn't have a ton of experience exploring her own sexuality and her own pleasure. But I would love for you to talk about like Clara's evolution through the book and like kind of how it relates to both like her relationship with Josh and all, but also like her Josh and Josh's ex-girlfriend Naomi kind of building Shameless, building this this platform for for sex ed that ultimately kind of addresses the kind of shitty mainstream porn industry. I talk about Clara as sort of like a zero to 60 person in that she kind of grew up being very careful and really like sort of like drew a comfort zone on the ground and just like stayed in it. And the opening of the book is her really taking a big leap for the first time, trying to pursue love and adventure. And I think it sort of opens up this chasm for her of, you know, I'm going to face my fears. And that's sort of like what her journey that we go on with her over the course of the novel, where, you know, in the beginning of the book, she's just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I've made a huge mistake. Like this is, it's kind of reinforcing the theories that she's held about taking big chances. But at the same time, she's now found herself living with Josh. And I think he makes her uncomfortable but like kind of in a good way like he's just very surprising she's never really known anyone like him I think she's drawn to how comfortable he is with himself and wants to kind of emulate that a little bit and she just kind of finds herself like opening new doors so she kind of like opens this new door to having this conversation with her family member that like that's kind of taboo within her circles like this person has been kind of ostracized so she's got like kind of momentum building up there and then eventually she you know she has this whole interaction with Josh which is very outside of her comfort zone and I think she just does it because she wants to feel like she has something to show for putting herself out there and so that's kind of why she has this first physically intimate interaction with Josh. And then she gets the job opportunity and it's like, okay, here's a, here's a chance to take on your fear of driving. And like, let's do that. I, I do think it's a sense of like getting momentum behind her. And, you know, once she's, maybe I'll use a driving metaphor, like once she's out there, it's easier to keep going. You know, I think the hardest thing can be to get yourself started. And the book is more just about her like moving into those things. I think the reasons Josh is able to help her and is like the right person to guide her on some of these steps is because like communication is so important to him. Like if you'll notice like in their first physical intimacy interaction, like just as important to like kind of the physical touch that he provides in that scene is the communication aspect he's constantly checking in to say are you comfortable like is this what you want he's also 
communicating about breaking down some of the barriers that she has around pursuing her own pleasure, you know, saying things like, you don't owe me anything out of this interaction. I don't care if this doesn't work and we have to try something else. Like, there's not a time limit here. A lot of things that I think women can internalize because again, like the idea of what sex is supposed to be is typically framed from a very cis male point of view. So he, he helps her in that way to dismantle a lot of things. And he's constantly kind of like sort of holding her hand. You know what I mean? Like, I think her journey very much comes from her own bravery, but at the same time, she has a supportive community um, in Josh and then later in the book in Naomi. And it was really important to me to have a a female character, a female sex worker involved in the creation of the company um, because it was going to be focused on female pleasure. And I didn't think, you know, just having like a male, and this comes up in the book, like Josh isn't the right person to do that on his own. And Naomi has not only like her sex work background, but she's pursuing a master's in family and relationship dynamics. And so she's very much like understands a lot of the nuance that goes into having those interactions be healthy. And so, yeah, she's like really key in in driving that program. Actually, in the second book, you'll kind of see a little bit more about how they like share leadership in in the company. Oh my gosh, we're going to get to that in a minute because I am so excited (laughs) about the intimacy experiment. But yeah, no, like I think it was really cool to see Clara's evolution and in sort of the way that Josh kind of like assuaged a lot of those fears that she had or, you know, based on her past experiences with with sex partners, right? It was like, you know, she's going to take too long. He's not going to come or like, you know, there was there's so many like myths that like he like busted in that in that first sex scene that you described where I was like, oh my gosh, like that is radical to have a partner who is constantly checking in, constantly communicating. And, you know, it's not just kind of like a a stop on the way to like get them off, you know? And I think that's powerful. And I also love that, you know, Josh helps Clara on this journey, but Clara also helps Josh a lot in terms of like his own kind of emotional hangups and like hangups around himself like as a sex worker, like part of his journey is like, this is all I can do, right? I'm only good for my body. I, you know, got this job right out of, you know, high school. And so now this is, this is all I can do. And I think as they build Shameless, as they build this, this platform through his interactions with Clara and Naomi too, like he's able to see like, oh, wait, I can do this thing that is so important to me. And like, I can expand my own view of myself, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much like a dual journey. And I think that's like what really attracts me to romance is when the two characters complement each other in ways that like any other person wouldn't be able to. Like their coming together is very much, they were who each other needed in order to kind of evolve and grow in the ways that they do. But yeah, you know, Josh absolutely like has internalized stigma around sex work himself and and he's unlearning that. And he's also, it's interesting, there's a parallel that I drew between Josh and Clara where Clara has lived her life according to other people's expectations. And Josh has lived his life up until the start of the book with the idea that no one expects him to amount to anything. And so I thought it was just kind of interesting to have these two characters where one of them has a ton of expectations, the other has none, but they both have to unlearn that like vision in order to 
define what they want for themselves. Yeah, I noticed that too. I think it, especially with Josh, it was it was really interesting to me to kind of explore that because I think sex work is really complicated in the society that we live in. And like, I think that there are, are sex workers from, from the conversations that I've had, there's sex workers who fully kind of choose the profession and own it. And this is what they want to do. And then there's others who through circumstance or whatever is that sort of like what they, what they can do. And I think with Josh, it wasn't necessarily sort of, he was like forced into sex work or anything like that. But, you know, I think through his own kind of internalized like view of himself and like the the lack of expectations that other people had for him that he had then internalized and and believed to be true he really kind of felt siloed into just being a sex worker just being a performer and and I thought it was also cool that like the solution to that isn't like he has a job in IT now he like he but like he actually was like oh no this part of sex work really centering female pleasure is super important to me and so now I'm going to like take that and then kind of build this platform to really kind of elevate that to the masses Yes, it was always really important to me that he doesn't like abandon sex work or sex workers at the end of the book. And that's actually like discussions that I had with people like editors and things at multiple stages of development of like, well, we kind of want him to like be more clear that he's like not performing anymore and things like that. And I was just like, that really underwrites a lot of who this character is. Like at the end of the book, he is building a startup to further sex education and he's hiring as many like people within the adult entertainment industry as he can and he's also committed to striving for legal change that's going to support the rights of sex workers like to me he's almost like doubling down on his investment in the community and I never wanted to like underwrite that like one he like enjoys performing and two he like more than anything values the community that he built through that exercise. Yeah. And I think that that's so valuable and like, and, and also it's, is very connected to the destigmatization of sex work. That's kind of like that through line throughout the book where like, yeah, it's not, the answer is not sex work is bad. And like, you don't have any self-esteem if you're a sex worker. The answer is let's create a, an, an industry that really centers pleasure for all people, right? And centers all bodies, you know, and normalizes being curious about your body and being curious about sex and normalizes good information that you can actually like kind of use in your life. Yeah. And I think you can also say like, there's room for reform, right? Like at no point is this meant to be an idealized version of the adult entertainment industry. Like, believe me, there's room for reform. And I think all the characters in the book know that and are trying to address that. So, but at the same time, it's not, I think people always want to make it like, let's just outlaw sex work or something if they're opposed to it. And it's like, there are so many industries that have corruption or have issues that people don't have that same kind of, like, look at healthcare, <laughs> like, obviously look at politics. So I just wish that people would invest in, in reform and understand that there is a lot that could be done to make the people involved in sex work safer rather than laws that make it more dangerous for them. For sure. Yeah. And I think stories like the roommate really contribute to that, right? It's, it's again, kind of imagining this world that we want to live in where it is, it is safe and it is a valuable part of, of society and can impact a lot of people because I think that really good 
versions of like adult entertainment or sex work like that is that's part of like the radical notion of like yeah like this this is a normal part of life and a normal part of development and like it's fine and I think quite often you know the adult entertainment industry the porn industry looks a lot like black hat who's kind of the evil um the evil kind of side of things that they're kind of up against right and it's great to be able to imagine a world where it's still sex work but it is it's kind of contributing to that world that we want to live in yeah and there are a lot of like performers and stuff who are working to create like ethical entertainment and stuff like that too so I think again it was more to just open people's eyes hopefully or to to honor the fact that it's not a monolith like there is a you know, as much varied experience in that industry as any other. Well, we teased this a little bit, but I would love to hear more about the intimacy experiment. I see that it's going to be released in April of this year and there's a summary up already and I'm so excited, (laughs) but yeah, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the sequel? So, you know, Naomi, who, if you read The Roommate, you met her and she's just one of my favorite characters. She's a performer and she's Josh's ex-girlfriend, but she's also like a very like intimate relationship in his life like she's somebody that supports him that understands him they work together to build shameless and so the intimacy experiment takes place pretty closely on the heels of the epilogue in the roommate so two years after the core events of the roommate the intimacy experiment picks up shameless has has been successful and Naomi, who again, like pursued education as part of a a master's degree, in addition to her experiences performing, wants to teach sex ed in live environments. So she's pursuing that, but she's running into a lot of obstacles because people don't want to hire her because of her sex work background, Um, which is definitely something that I've heard from, from people who are trying to make that transition from sex work into sex ed which is so frustrating because it's like there's so much valid experience that they can bring to the table and academia in particular is like so quick to invalidate them so she's very frustrated as you can imagine she's not taking it no pun intended lying down um and she gets a offer to teach a modern intimacy seminar from a reform rabbi, which is very as surprising to her as it may be to you. And yes, yeah, so my hero is Ethan Cohen. He is a physicist turned rabbi, and he's trying to recruit younger people to his congregation, which is kind of like a, a failing congregation. And he thinks that bringing in this new kind of programming that helps people connect sort of the things that are important to them, like dating and sex, to bigger ideals of Judaism, like faith and interconnectedness, they end up writing the syllabus for what modern intimacy looks like. And it kind of tackles all different kinds of issues that develop in interpersonal relationships. And they may or may not use that syllabus to later fall in love. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I think that I, Naomi was one of my like favorite characters of the roommate. And so I was really excited to see that she is featured as the heroine in the sequel. And yeah, I think I'm really excited for you to explore a lot of these kind of ideas of like religion and Judaism and how that interacts with with sex and intimacy. And like, I just want Naomi to succeed so much. And so I'm like really excited. <laughs> for the end of the book too so oh can't wait yeah I'm so excited to share it with people like it is you know it's a different book than The Roommate I talk about how 
in my mind, the roommate is like a shot of tequila, basically. Like it's just like makes you feel like warm and giggly and kind of loose. And I describe the intimacy experiment, and this is a little different, as like the first breakfast you make for someone after you've spent the night together. And it's like you're kind of hopeful and you feel really vulnerable and it's maybe clumsy in certain ways, but it's more like earnest for all of that. So yeah, I hope people will enjoy it. And, you know, we get to learn so much more about Naomi and and that was like a joy to, to write down. Awesome. Well, I cannot wait for April, 2021. Is the release date April 6th, 2021? Yep. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely. If you haven't yet pick up the roommate for sure and you can read it. And then in six months, we'll get the sequel, which we're super excited (laughs) about. (laughs) Well, Rosie, you have been such a joy to have on. Thank you so much for taking the time um, and chatting with me. Yes. Thank you so much for such a thoughtful discussion. It was, it was a blast. Awesome. I'll give you a space to plug yourself, plug everything that anything that you'd like um, our listeners to, to check out. Sure. So um, in addition to the roommate and the intimacy experiment, um, I actually just announced like a few days ago, a another book deal. So I'm going to be writing um, up next in 20. 20- 22, which I know is a little far off, but maybe you can add it to Goodreads if it sounds interesting, is basically a book about two best friends and bed and breakfast owners who get the chance to invest and basically claim a surprise inheritance, actually. But at the same time, a private investigator has just checked into their B&B and he is sniffing around a secret in their backyard. And I basically, it's like my 90k epilogue to the song goodbye earl (laughs) is basically uh the way i'm pitching that book so yeah if you'd like to learn more about any of my books you can uh follow me on social media i am at rosie dannon on twitter and instagram or you can go to rosiedannon.com oh my gosh wow i just got even more excited uh (laughs) can't wait for that one too well thanks again rosie really really appreciate it thank you take care